Sandy Clough and Sean Trotar. Weekdays at 2 on Mile High Sports. And good afternoon. Welcome to Sandy and Sean on Mile High Sports, 98.1 FM, 107.5 HD3. Our caller text line, as always, 303-831-1340. We are streaming on milehighsports.com slash listen on the free Mile High Sports app. Our producer is Danny Bailey. And I am Sandy Clough. Sean Drotar will join us momentarily as we uh, get set to look at game number three tonight in the Western Conference semifinal series between the Denver Nuggets and the Phoenix Suns. It occurred to me, of course, after we were off the air yesterday, it occurred to me, so I've had to uh, wait almost 24 hours to introduce the idea of looking at this Nugget playoff run as somewhat akin to what the Denver Broncos did in 1997. You'll remember how the Bronco AFC playoff run was categorized at the time as the revenge tour. Their first wild card game as they were a wild card team, not a division winner in 1997, happened to come against the Jacksonville Jaguars. Again, at Old Mile High Stadium, where a year earlier, the Broncos had lost a divisional playoff game, shockingly, to the same Jacksonville Jaguars. That was game number one in their playoff odyssey that followed the 1997 season. They disposed of Jacksonville with relatively few anxious moments. They then went on to play in Kansas City in the divisional round. Division round. And I guess in football it is divisional. And they knocked off the Chiefs, who had beaten them out of a ball game late in the year in Kansas City that helped secure for Kansas City first place that year in the AFC West, with Denver finishing second. They beat the Chiefs in what Mike Shanahan for the past quarter century plus is described as the most physical game he was ever involved in on any level. Broncos won the game 14-7, hanging on defensively as the Chiefs were driving at the end of the ball game. Uh, I believe 14-10 to 10 was the final score, actually. So the Chiefs were driving, needing a touchdown to win, and certainly getting into scoring territory. Broncos held them off, won the game. Then they went to Pittsburgh, old Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh, play against old friend Cordell Stewart and the Pittsburgh Steelers, who had beaten the Broncos also out of a ball game late in the year that helped deprive Denver of finishing first. And that was called the revenge tour. The Broncos, of course, won the game, went on to play Green Bay in the Super Bowl and won that game for their first Super Bowl win, their first championship in franchise history. And I look at the Nuggets this year. Now, I have to stretch it a little bit. And Sean Rotar has joined us. Sean and I will explain quickly here what I'm referring to. First-round series against Minnesota. Now, 
this current edition of the Nuggets has never played Minnesota in the playoffs, but five years ago, in game 82, the two teams were playing for a spot in the playoffs. Winner qualified, the loser went home for the summer. And Minnesota won that game in overtime. So maybe a bit of a revenge motive with some of the same characters still in place on both sides. Now they play the Phoenix Suns, who decisioned them two years ago in this same round of the playoffs in a four-game sweep. If they get past the Suns, and they still have some work to do, they would then take on either the Golden State Warriors, who knocked them out of the playoffs last year in five games in the opening round, or the Los Angeles Lakers, who beat them in the bubble for the Western Conference title. And, of course, the Lakers went on and won the championship in the bubble in Orlando back in 2020. So, certainly, from here on out, in the Western Conference playoffs, the Nuggets are on their sort of basketball version of the Wrench Tour that the Broncos followed in 1997. Do you buy that, Sean Rotar? Not, in, not entirely. Kind of a motivating I, I get thing. your point. I get your point because, yeah, they've been knocked out by all three of these teams. And in right. Golden State's case, until Danilo Gallinari got hurt, <laughs> The, the Nuggets were likely to, it seemed likely to beat Golden State. Instead, that really became the jumping off point for the eventual dynasty that Golden State would become. You're and, exactly right. And then right. you talk about this, the other two defeats, the, the Lakers one was really painful because the Nuggets felt they had a chance to get to their first finals in history. And that Suns just wipeout was a disaster. I mean, uh, the, the Nuggets allowed 120-plus points in three out of those four games. Mm-hmm. They were not competitive uh, in a, a, a few of them. I mean, the first, the first game they lost by 17. The other one yes. they lost by 25. They lost by 14. In the game they were swept, they still lost by seven, and that left with uh, Nikola Jokic ended up being ejected. Yes. It, it was not only it was an embarrassment. It really was. The only thing that I would say that is different, that's substantially different, is the Denver Broncos... And some of this is the nature of the NFL, in which every team in the NFL knows they can win a championship. It doesn't, there's a wide variety of teams that can win if they're managed well. The sort of market size and the nature of, of the NBA with smaller rosters that tends to favor certain bigger teams with bigger salaries. So the difference is the Broncos at that point in time before losing to the Jaguars on that, on what I believe was a loss that propelled them to winning the next two Super Bowls. Although Shannon Sharp said right after that game, this loss sets us back a decade. Felt like it, didn't it? Certainly felt like and, it, and, and no one disputed Shannon Sharp at the time. John Elway, the by his own admission, favorites. went into seclusion. They, it was a they devastating were, They were the loss. favorites to win the Super Bowl at that loss. point. They were absolutely expected to win the AFC at the bare minimum. Yes, at the, at the bare minimum. Now, Super Bowl against that Green Bay Packer team, might have been more of a challenge. It Who may knows? have, but they were expected to make the Super Bowl, not get wiped out in the first round to a relatively new team in the Jacksonville Jaguars. And so while, while there are some distinct differences to it, because the, the Broncos, of course, had gotten close, they'd lost at that point for Super Bowls, but the Nuggets have never been there. And maybe given that scenario, 
it's not as different as, as one might think because these losses mm-hmm. are so recent. Now, Chris Paul's oh. not going to play. The same characters are there. in play. The same, the same it, people, but the, the Lakers are there. The same Warriors are all absolutely. there. These are teams that and players that they're fully aware knocked them out. And so it, and it's a now, little unusual to have that kind of lineup. Seem to be, maybe not so much with Phoenix at the moment, seem to be overshadowing them. Yes. And that is a source, at least with Jamal Murray and Michael Malone, of considerable irritation. Michael Malone going as far Monday night as to thank a reporter who had picked the Nuggets to win the series over Phoenix. Single out that reporter and offer his thanks. Why Michael Malone is concerned about that, I have no idea. But Jamal Murray has referred to the idea that the Nuggets are being overshadowed, uh, disrespected by the media specifically. And I don't think Nikola Jokic cares about that any more than he cared about being the MVP for third straight year. In other words, not at all, but two Nuggets, the head coach and their lead player beyond Jokic, Apparently do care about that. And I imagine revenge might be the wrong word, but believing that this is their time, that Phoenix's time was two years ago, uh, that Golden State's time for a fourth time was last year. Right. And that the Lakers' time was in the bubble. The Lakers weren't an upset winner in the bubble. The Lakers were thought by many to be the best team during the season before the lockdown. And as 22 teams entered the bubble in 2020, in the summer of 2020, the Lakers were considered to be not the prohibitive favorite, but the favorite. And probably the Clippers and the Bucks were right behind them at two and three. The Nuggets made a lot of noise in the bubble even though they had a losing record in the playoffs and in what amounted to the final games of the regular season, which didn't really serve much That's important to remember, I think, when people think about the bubble and think that, you know, the the Nuggets sort of surprised everybody. They did. They did. And even though they won more than they lost, they did surprise everybody because they got all the way to the final four of, of the NBA that year, the conference finals. The I get the chip on the shoulder from Murray. Of course, Murray is that kind of player. He carries that a lot. He relies on that. Yes. And Michael Malone may be a little different situation, obviously. Sort of intriguing that, that he would he would bring that up. But I don't find it all that strange. And there's a difference, too, um, between disrespect. And I think for a time, the Denver Nuggets have been disrespected, though I don't believe it's this season, unless you're calling Nikola Jokic himself, who I think was clearly disrespected, in a couple circles when we're talking about MVP with the idea of stat padding and some of the other sort of uh, nonsense accusations around it that were designed to sort of weigh in on the MVP race. Now, I think Jokic was disrespected. Jokic himself doesn't care. I don't think the Nuggets are being disrespected. But I think the difference is that they're being overlooked. They have been they have been in this playoff situation now for the last few years. Everyone knows, I think even nationally, the talent that they have. But Here's the difference. 
Chris Paul is a Hall of Famer. Kevin Durant has a ring. LeBron James and Anthony Davis have rings. Most of that golden Steph Curry, the, the heart of it, has rings. Has four rings. Yeah. And so, obviously, when you get folks that are champions, and we're talking about everybody we just mentioned are all Hall of Famers. Across the rest of the country, most people are not watching the Denver Nuggets. That's the simple reality of it. The NBA, by and large, with the exception of probably Chicago, and occasional blips in Houston, and even in, even in San Antonio, the, the problem was the same, even when they were winning titles. The NBA still, to an extent, is a coastal league when it comes to the national attention. It is what's happening with the Lakers out west and what's happening with teams back east with a blip in Chicago or occasionally Texas when it's good. But even when they had David Robinson and Tim Duncan and Kawhi Leonard and were winning titles, the San Antonio Spurs were sometimes overlooked as well. Because, again, a, a smaller market, even smaller than Denver. Now, when they once they won, the perception changed. But this, to my mind, looks very much like San Antonio before they broke through with Robinson and Duncan. I think people know the ability is there. They know the players. But they need to see it. Otherwise, it's this interesting team from the smaller city that's never won anything. And how do we end up taking it seriously? And that sets it apart from, let's say, what we saw in Milwaukee. And Milwaukee, of course, in the modern NBA from, let's say, David Stern's administration on in, in the you know 80s and 90s. Milwaukee was not going to be a, a factor for the most part. But Milwaukee, even in its history, had been champions. Well, 50 years before they won it in 21, right. they were the champions with... Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Oscar Roberts. But Denver has never done it, ever. And so Denver's never made the NBA final. Are they being overlooked? Yes, they are. Is it disrespect? I think there's a difference. Yeah. And I think when you look at the way that, let's say, not Murray or Malone is taking it, but the way Jokic takes it, the way uh, you see comments from guys like Bruce Brown, there is more the idea, well, then let's just keep winning and we'll show them. Right. We'll force them to look at us. That's a different chip on your shoulder than we're being well, disrespected. Here's the chip on Nikola Jokic's shoulder. <laughs> and I, I use the word chip on the, or the phrase, yeah. chip on the shoulder advisedly. His idea of chip on the shoulder is responding to a question the other day. I think Katie Wingy posed it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, Katie Wingy. Uh, uh, Wingy of Altitude. Uh, Asked him, you know, what about going to Phoenix and with with the idea of winning one game? And Jokic's response was, "Why one? Why not two? Yeah, yeah. and he's right. Sure. Why not two? And so that's the chip on the shoulder for Nikola Jokic. Why? Why should we settle for one? Aren't we playing two games in Phoenix? And we haven't we shown to be significantly better in the first two? We were better in the first two now." Certainly, Nikola Jokic understands that the two games in Phoenix uh, might offer different challenges from playing the first two at home. Uh, Phoenix, uh, even without Chris Paul, is probably more of a team to be reckoned with playing at home, uh, as many teams are, because they're reserve players, utility players, secondary players, complementary players, however you want to term them. 
usually play better at home than they do on the road. Stars play well everywhere. Superstars, obviously, play well everywhere. Uh, reserve players tend to play a lot better at home, and Phoenix's bench was so bad in the first two games, they could hardly be worse. And there are a couple of guys who, for reasons known only to Monty Williams, have not seen the court yet in this series. And they're both two guys who are proven scorers in this league. One is 29-year-old T.J. Warren, and the other is 32-year-old Terrence Ross. Both have had big scoring games in their history, and yes, have produced in the playoffs. Why they have not played a second in the series, I have no idea. But with Chris Paul out, Monty Williams would have to play them. And it's conceivable that one could turn out to be a wild card player, if not both, uh, in the game tonight and could have an effect on the outcome. I happen to think Phoenix has an edge tonight. And much as I thought about Minnesota in the previous series, down two games to none, I thought there most inspirational game might come in game three uh, while they weren't facing elimination and they would be anxious to redeem themselves for two bad performances on their home court. Uh, didn't turn out that way. The Nuggets won the third game and then the fourth game turned out the way I thought the third game might turn out and the Nuggets still won the series back home in game five. And I would say I, my feeling is the games in the Phoenix will be split. Um, my guess is the Nuggets would win game four, especially if they lose tonight. <laughs> Obviously, they went tonight. They're up 3-0. They know they have uh, two more home games if they need them in their back pocket. They only need to win one more game. Uh, the series is effectively over when the road team, in this case Denver, wins for the first time because that makes a 2-0 series a 3-0 series. We will have George Carl on with us later on. Mm -hmm. And yes. on our podcast today, Truth and Basketball, which is uh, available right now uh, through uh, George's production company, Truth Plus Media, and will soon, if not right now, be available on Mile High Sports, 107.5 HD3, 98.1 FM. Uh, certainly, uh, the, the range of topics was wide, and we will have George joining us at 3.30 today to talk more about this series and other NBA uh, playoff activity. Uh, but uh, I was glad to hear George uh, say things that were similar to what we said on Tuesday, that one of the differences, one of several between these two teams so far in the series has been that the Nuggets have settled on a firm, solid rotation, substitution pattern involving eight people who all played between 16 and 41 minutes in Game 2 this past Monday night in a 97-87 win for the Nuggets, game that was very different from 125 to 107 right. for the score in Game 1. The Nuggets are finding different ways to win. You find different ways to win when you have a complete team. I would say the Nuggets aren't necessarily the best team left in the playoffs, but they seem to be, as of right now, the most complete team with the most settled rotation, uh, Boston is right behind them, and Boston was in the finals last year mm -hmm. and came close. Uh, they were in the conference finals in the bubble in 2020, lost to Miami. So they, they've, they've been closer than the Nuggets have been in recent years to winning. But certainly in the West, the four remaining teams, the Nuggets seem to be uh, the most complete team. And uh, 
George believes that Phoenix is unsettled in many ways that go beyond simply the injury to Chris Paul. Well, we'll have an opportunity to talk to uh, Coach George Carl later in the program, and obviously you can go get that uh, podcast, Truth and Basketball, wherever you get your podcast. But you talk about the potential desperation for Phoenix in this game, and DeAndre Ayton spoke about it, and uh, if if you have to be uh, a a Broncos fan from way back, sort of uh, Keith Bishop vibes. Coming from DeAndre Ayton, I'll explain next on Mile High Sports. Sandy Cuff and Chandro Tar, presented by Superbook Sports. Download the Superbook app and start winning today at Superbook.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. The Phoenix Suns are certainly uh, up against it, and we talked about how uh, the, the, the Nuggets are perhaps being overlooked. I mean, obviously, if you go to uh, the folks at ESPN, their lead story on their NBA page is how the Suns fell down 2-0 and how they can get out of it. It has, you know, it's not talking about uh, what the Nuggets have done to get the lead. It's about how does how does that superstar Suns team get out of it? And, and that is the nature of the As I recall, NBA. they aren't terribly encouraging. Uh, although they do consider the possibility, and it is conceivable, that Phoenix could win two games in Phoenix. Teams that lose the first two games on the road since 1984 have won 8% of best-of-seven series. That's how they start the article. But I get the idea that... that <laughs> so the, you're saying there's a chance yeah, for the, Phoenix, the, the, but the, not the a Nuggets particularly feel good like one. maybe they're yeah. being overlooked because the team that has the 8% chance of winning the series is the one that they're focusing on because yeah. they have stars. But the Nuggets, if... if they follow Nikola Jokic's lead, don't care, shouldn't care, just go win your game. But I mentioned Keith Bishop before, and obviously people remember in uh, 19, following the 1987 season, and you're talking about the, the drive in Cleveland, when 97 and a half yards to go, and reportedly when the uh, Broncos came up on that last drive, uh, Keith Bishop in the huddle, then the starting guard for the Broncos, that sort of gallows humor joked, we got him right where we want him. Turns out the Broncos actually then drove the entire distance. So we hit Mark Jackson. The Broncos then went to the Super Bowl. Well, I know that happened because although I didn't hear Keith Bishop say it, I was there. And (laughs) uh, I can tell you in the stadium, as the Broncos bumbled and stumbled on the kickoff return following the go-ahead touchdown pass from Vernon Kosar to Brian Brennan that beat Dennis Smith, caught the Broncos in a a coverage that was distinctly unfavorable to Denver and very favorable to Cleveland, and it looked to be the game-deciding play in a contest that had featured defense and turnovers more than it had offense. And this was 20-13 to for Cleveland, with under five minutes from in the and, and game. Pardon me, I think I said the so, 87 season, 86 season, the game was played in 87. Well, January 11th. Right, yes. To exactly. be precise, January exactly 11th, right. 1987. And um, there, there were, I, I think that, I take that back, I think they're a little more than, just a little more than five minutes from anyone. The Broncos are fumbling and stumbling on the kickoff and ended up with, you know, basically 98 yards mm-hmm. to go. Uh, all the way to the dog pound end of the stadium where all the dog biscuits were being thrown. 
and the field was uh, made up nicely of dirt. <laughs> you know, some yes. painting had been done, but that basically was a dirt field. Yes, painted and, dirt. Uh, yeah, uh, and the Cleveland fans uh, were already very much starting to celebrate. It seemed like the Browns' time. We talked about this being maybe the Nuggets' year. It, Cleveland Browns' year was in 1986 because the previous week they'd been on the ropes late against the Jets in, in much more of a position of disadvantage than the Broncos were at that particular time, and they'd come back to win. And what would be more fondly remembered in Cleveland these days if the Browns had gotten all the way to the Super Bowl? But because they didn't, that miracle win against the Jets the previous week is not remembered at all. It's the drive by Elway that ensued once the Broncos got the ball at their two-yard line, and they were lucky to have it because they could have lost the ball on the kickoff return. And, of course, Elway leads them uh, on the drive, and John Elway becomes John Elway on January 11, 1987. The John Elway that we remember today emerged as a great star during that one single drive, and it, it, it is so well-remembered that, in a sense, people, I think, forget that it was not a game-winning drive. It was a game-time drive. Correct. And the Broncos had to win in overtime. overtime. And Cleveland, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, had the ball at the beginning of overtime, and the overtime rules weren't the same right. as they are in the playoffs today where both teams now get a shot. Even if the first team with possession scores a touchdown, the other team can answer. Uh, obviously, that wasn't the rule back then. It was sudden death. Cleveland had the ball first, didn't move. Uh, Denver was eventually able to move into field goal range. And I'm still not positive that Rich Carlos actually made that kick. But uh, it was one of those deals where uh, it was uh, ruled a good kick. And depending on the angle from which you viewed it, uh, it was either good or it missed slightly. In any event, the Broncos were destined to win that game. And, of course, they were also destined to get slaughtered in the Super Bowl uh, yes. up by the Giants. And now, at the time, that wasn't particularly unusual because the right. Giants had beaten the Broncos badly uh, or had played a close game against the Broncos during the season and beaten their previous playoff opponents quite badly uh, that year in 1986. But then, of course, 1987, we know what happened, 1989, Super Bowl played in calendar year 1990. We we, we know what happened with uh, with all that. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think the Nuggets are in a great position psychologically right now, as I think the Broncos were in in 1986, because it did look like Cleveland's year in the AFC. The Pro Football Hall of Fame, by the way, still refers to that as we speak, as basically, uh, and their exact terms are, Pro Football's prototypical clutch performance. That is the quote. Oh, it's the, the pro football. Effect. Absolutely. The reason yeah. I bring it up, however, is not actually for the Denver Nuggets, but rather for the Phoenix Suns, who coming into this series were considered the favorite to win the West, despite the seedings. And despite the fact that Chris Paul was ruled out of the game today, uh, yesterday, 
during practices, both Kevin Durant and DeAndre Ayton were talking about how they were going to go on without him. So, I mean, there was no question he wasn't <laughs> going right. to play. Uh, Kevin Durant said, obviously, we're going to miss Chris and what he yeah. brings to the table. We've got to go out there and play our game, play together. We try not to think too much about it, try to move the ball and play together. That's, that's your standard run-of-the-mill response. DeAndre Ayton's a little more interesting. They're just new adversity. It's all part of the playoffs. And the thing is, it's really enlightened us. Now we've got to grit and grind. Now we're desperate. And I kind of like it. We've got nothing to lose. That is probably sure they do. the right sure they approach do. Well, for, okay. for, for Aiton, who is maybe. probably the player who has to step up yes, more than anybody else. I, I would agree with that. But they do have something well, to lose. Of course they do. They do have something to and lose. They, they were considered going into the series to be the favorite, not only for this series, but to win the West. Yeah. And and for quite some time, pretty much ever since the trade was made for Kevin Durant, even when Kevin Durant was injured and yet you knew he was coming back for the playoffs. They've, be they've back basically back the become the, they, the they, favorite. They've become, become the favorites. So but, you know, Keith Bishop but, wasn't being totally to, honest when they, they didn't really have the rounds where they wanted them at 97 no, and a half yards but, away but either. It was that kind of team, too, that kind of embraced that stuff in a weird way. Do we know and that, I don't the know the are. Suns are. I, I don't know. I don't, the, the, the Suns, to me, now, you know, they can prove me wrong, I guess, by coming back and winning the series. But it, they don't strike me. The Broncos maintain that underdog men, mentality. Uh, Cleveland had the home field advantage, so it was very easy to cast themselves as underdogs as they were playing in Cleveland. The championship, and that's game. and that's the tricky part. So, if you're the so Suns, it, you've been Phoenix the now in one week goes from heavy favorites to absolute underdogs, and now they're trying to put on new clothing. And I'm not sure it fits very well. And this is where I think if the Nuggets have an advantage here, if they continue, don't worry about the disrespect angle. Don't worry about the the overlooked angle. You've been the underdogs. You were the underdogs in the series as the series began. Are you now because you've won the first two games? No. But in the series, you were still considered the underdogs. And embrace it. It's the Nuggets tonight who have nothing to lose. That's exactly right. I, I mean, they don't lose anything. I'll tell you what, they don't lose any if they lose both games in Phoenix. They're, they're right back where they started with home court advantage. It's just a best of three series instead of a best of seven. They can play, as they say now in the trade, with a free mind from a psychological point of view. Phoenix cannot. They can pretend that they are because they're at home, but they're not. They're not playing with a free mind. They're no. Down. They, they have to win. They understand they have to win. And, and, and look. It doesn't matter about how, what your talent is, and it doesn't matter if you have Kevin Durant and Devin Booker. If you are down three games to zero in a seven-game series, uh, you need a miracle because not only do you have to win four in a row, presumably you have to win four in a row over a team that's at least, if not out, out better than you, certainly playing better than you. That's why they have a 3-0 lead. So, yes, Phoenix is is trying to posture themselves as something that up until – Really, game two, even game one, until the game two loss, nobody thought they were, even including the Suns. So now they're in a strange spot, and it's a terrific opportunity for the Nuggets to pounce because I do expect, in the early going, the Suns to, one, play a little tight. Two, they have to get a feel for what they're doing with (laughs) Devin Booker now presumably functioning as the point guard and the the number two score on the team. They have to reinvent themselves in some ways. Now, I understand that some of the metrics show that 
the Suns have done just fine with Booker running the team, but they haven't started games that way. And it's different when you start the game with Booker running the team and presumably end the game, if it's at all close, with Booker running the team, rather than simply having Booker run the team when he's on the court and Paul isn't. That's a very different sort of challenge. They need someone, at the very least, to take the scoring burden off the shoulders of Booker and Durant. Could be Aiton in part. It but only in Aiton. part. Aiton's not going to go off for you, 30 you even against anybody, it. much less I mean, They haven't played the Terrence Nuggets. Ross and TJ Warren. Those guys aren't right. going to pop up and score 20 on you. Well, one of them has to, in my view. And I, I think there's a decent chance if Monty Williams will play them and get them involved in the flow of the game, I think there's a decent chance that one of those two, not both, but one of those two could provide that spark and frankly, I think has to provide that spark. Aiton has to be a better scorer than he's been in either of the first two games. Uh, somebody like Tory Craig has to begin to play like he's expected to play. A Kogi, the, the guy who's been starting at small forward, has been invisible right. in, in this really series. Uh, they need somebody to make a three-point shot. I don't care how many points they score so much. But maybe it could be Lee, who is maybe their best three-point shooter. It isn't Durant, or it isn't, and it isn't Booker. By the way, it, Lee is probably their highest percentage three-point shooter, but he didn't do anything else. So whether it's Lee or Warren or Ross, somebody, particularly from three-point land, has to take charge. They they don't necessarily have to take a lot more threes, but they have to make more than they've made in the first two games. And, and Aiton's not going to give them a three-point presence at all. You're you're giving Aiton 15-foot jump shots. Right. You're certainly not worried about the three-point line with him. Exactly. Well, the Denver Nuggets do not need a win tonight, but if you are injured, you do. And so go and visit our friends at Burnham Law. That's BurnhamLaw.com. The phone number is 720-845-7001. Hire the winner. That's what they do. They win. When you're injured, they push for you to get your maximum recovery, whether that's by settlement or by trial. Their personal injury attorneys have years of experience fighting for their clients, and they have locations everywhere you are. Fort Collins, Boulder, Westminster, Cherry Creek, the DTC, Colorado Springs, even up in Cheyenne. So when you're hurt, you can't mess around with this. Don't just hire a lawyer that you saw on a billboard. Go and get the folks that win. Proven winners. Those are our friends at Burnham Law. BurnhamLaw.com 720-845- Seven zero zero one. The coaching matchup in this has been interesting. And when you look at the career records of Monty Williams and Michael Malone, you see some similarities. But as the series has gone along, they really haven't. We'll compare and contrast the two coaches next on My Life Sports. This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Shoots up through the stony ground. There's no room. 
Michael Malone has been a head coach in the NBA for 10 seasons. Now, of course, two in Sacramento before taking over as the Nuggets head coach. His career record. Back in 2015. Mm -hmm. Career record of 743 games, 406 337, a 546 winning percentage, which right. is quite respectable. But the relevant numbers are Denver numbers, 367, 270, 576. percentage of 576, right. which uh, is somewhere between uh, Doug Moe and George Carl most uh, closely resembles Doug's record. Uh, and George, whether people want to believe this or not, you can look it up. Uh, was a 600 career coach mm-hmm. when he left here. He was a 620 coach with Carmelo Anthony and about a 655 coach without Carmelo Anthony. So uh, George's Denver record will always stand, I suspect, as that's a hard one for sure. The best Nugget coaching record of all time, and in many ways, in in my opinion, based on that fact. He is the best coach the Denver Nuggets have ever had. And, of course, Larry Brown took a Nuggets team to the Western Conference Finals. Doug Moe in uh, 1985, seven years after Brown did it, uh, did it with the Nuggets. And, of course, George did it in 2009. Michael Malone in the bubble in 2020. Uh, Malone, if the Nuggets win the series, will be the first Nugget coach to take a team to the conference finals multiple times. Multiple times. Now, Monty Williams is in his ninth season as a head yes. coach. Now, in, in some ways, a similar path. Now, while Malone was only with Sacramento for two, Williams was with New Orleans for five and did take the, the well, one season they were the, uh, the Hornets, one season they were the Pelicans, but they were both in New Orleans, did take them to the playoffs two different times. Uh, Malone did not get Sacramento, as nobody had up until this year, to the playoffs uh, if, in, the, in the two years he was there. And his winning percentage in Sacramento, 368. Now, Malone's been in Denver now for eight seasons. Monty Williams, this is his fourth in Phoenix. The winning percentage in Phoenix is 628. He's 39 and a half games over 500. Michael Malone, 48 and a half in his eight. So some similarities. I, you could make the argument that with two 700-plus winning seasons, that maybe Williams would be the better coach. But it's the playoffs that are interesting because there they've been about the same when you're talking about appearances. Monty Williams has coached 52 playoff games in his career. Michael Malone has coached 55. Now, a couple of those, a two and eight with New Orleans. But let's just go ahead and take that whole career path because that's fine. Because remember, with the, with New Orleans thing in two and eight, that's going to knock it down. But over the course of his career in his 52 games, Monty Williams is 27 and 25, 519 winning percentage. Yeah, Certainly very better. unusual for a non-championship coach to have a winning playoff record. Almost and, unprecedented. And better in Phoenix, where he's 25 and 17, 595 in the last four seasons. So a good playoff record. Michael Malone has had only, up until this this now playoffs, one playoff run, the 2018-2019 season, in which they were even 500 when they went 7-7. Seven and seven. 
They had losing records the rest of the way, and now, thanks to the 6-1 and one start to this playoffs, Malone has an opportunity to tie his wins and losses in the playoffs. If, they, if the Nuggets win tonight, he'll go to 28-28. and 28. But as it stands right now, 27-28, and 28, under 500. Now, as you pointed out, not a surprise, right? Hasn't nope, been a... hasn't been to a conference final except more than once. Hasn't been to an NBA final at all. And of course, generally, if you're a coach that hasn't had a team go that far, of course you have a losing record because you get eliminated. But in Williams' case, at least the indication is that, given the fact he's taken a Phoenix team to the finals has a better playoff record. The indication is you would believe that that Monty Williams would have the coaching advantage over Michael Malone in this playoffs. In the first two games, however, it's been anything but. Not only has Malone seemed to evolve as a coach with experience and starting to push all the right buttons at the right times, he's had probably the best coaching performance of his career in this playoffs thus far. Playoffs are regular seasons. As good as it's been for him in his career. Monty Williams, however even prior to the Chris Paul injury, has seemed sort of discombobulated in the way he's coached the Suns. I agree. I'm, I, I'm I agree for this, this, why. this series. Malone's been steadier on the bench. No, no. I think he has a better team, um, but he has been steadier. And as I pointed out earlier, he has established his rotation coming off the bench. And even before Paul got hurt, Phoenix was pretty healthy, as healthy as the Nuggets were before Paul got hurt. And his substitutions w- ran the gamut it, up to and including uh, choosing not to use two players who have been proven playoff performers in the past. When you when you do that, and we're talking about Terrence Ross and TJ Warren, and presumably now because scoring is a need, the presumption is those guys will get to play. But but now how? difficult can it be and it helps that veteran guys i suppose to be able to now try to build the way your rotation is going on the fly asking guys who haven't played for you to pop in and you know presumably if you're talking to a guy like terrence ross who say hey we need you to score probably 14 15 points well, tonight yeah sorry um, you haven't been but, playing at but all scores their scores and uh, you know the, the difficulty comes in determining how they're going to get the ball uh, where they'll get the ball, will they be in a position to shoot? I imagine they can still shoot, especially playing at home. Uh, but, yes, they, they, they aren't complete players. Uh, they certainly aren't saviors. But Phoenix needs a third score in this series. They have not come close to producing that with those two guys nailed the bench in the first two games. What do you have to lose by using them? You've almost got to use at least one of them, right? Paul's out. So it seems to me that you have a couple the three there. guys, I, actually there are three, one who has played some, and if he's hot, will play more, and that's Lee. Then there's Ross. Then there's Warren. And don't forget about Cameron Payne, of course, who they're going to have well, to have. I, I, I understand. Well, he's and been if abysmal it, in Cameron series. Payne, without the bad back, Two years ago was one of the better backup point guards in the league and, you know, had big games in the playoffs and at times was just as good as Paul for Phoenix when he was on the floor. That doesn't seem to be the case this year. I don't know if it's the back. 
I, I don't know if he's lost his game, lost his confidence. I think it's probably a combination of uh, all of those things, but he was an utter failure on Monday night. Uh, he's another guy, though, who will probably play better on his home floor. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, fine, throw him in there. He may even start. Uh, you know, probably since he has played sparingly, but he's played a little bit, I'd start him. He'd probably be my choice to start with Booker and Durant and maybe Craig, instead of coming off the bench, mm-hmm. starts. And he reverses roles with a Kobe. So you, you have, obviously, Durant and it, Aiton and either Craig or Akogi up front, Booker and Payne in the backcourt, and then who comes off the bench first? Is it Akogi if Craig starts? If Akogi starts, is it Craig? Probably. But then at 7, 8, and you know, he's used 10 guys at times of the series. He just hasn't used Ross or Warren, which I, I don't understand. They're healthy. Troy Craig got Why 24 minutes in game one, and then in game two, he got 11. When you're talking about game one for Damian Lee, Lee had 12 in game one, in which uh, he was one for four. And then in game two, 26 minutes, in which he was 0 for 5. Yeah. Now, Lee's, as, as you pointed out, perhaps their best three-point shooter, although he yeah. hasn't looked like it in this right. series. And that that's the trick. Do you, do you bring in Cameron Payne and try to at least give the Nuggets the idea, the look, that maybe they'll split some of the the ball handling load with Booker, or the Nuggets mm-hmm. probably won't fall for that. That's why I wonder if they'll actually try to start Lee or Craig. Could be. Even, uh, and, and, and make and Booker. And Payne come off the bench and Booker have to the be the orchestrator yeah. uh, right from the beginning. Um, Booker I, played 45 minutes yeah. in game two, Sandy. Well, he's going to have to play again. 45 tonight. He's going to have to do it again. three days off. That's the advantage. If Phoenix has any edge that the Durant and Booker played huge minutes on Monday night. One played 45, the other played 44. Right. Booker they played 40 three in game one. Days. Yeah, but they have three days to rest. So you can throw them back out there tonight for about 45 minutes. Sunday's another question, but they got to get to Sunday right. with a win tonight. A loss tonight, it, they can play Durant and Booker 48 minutes or eight minutes on Sunday, it won't make any difference. The series will be gone if the Suns lose tonight. Teams don't come back in the NBA from 3-0 deficits. Here's what I think we'll see, and we'll we'll end up discussing it, of course, because there are a couple things that Phoenix can do. One of them might look a little bit similar to what the Nuggets have been doing thus far in the series. We'll talk about uh, the strategies on the court that may be deployed in tonight's game. We'll do that next on Mile High Sports. I was scared of pretty good.